Father, what do we have that we could give to you, the King of all kings? We uh, are glad to do our part, but, but Lord, really, anything that we offer to you is something that has is first owned by you and has has been given to us. And so, Lord, we we want to give you all of our hearts. We, we don't want to hold anything back. And so tonight, would you take all of us, each part, and use us for the sake of your service. Instruct us in your word. May your Holy Spirit speak to us. May he illumine our minds so that we understand the significance of the text that we would have the hostility that we naturally have towards it removed, and also that we'd be able to apply it to our lives. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 8 is the focus of our attention tonight. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Suppose that it became a regular practice in every restaurant that before your burger was brought to the table, it was sacrificed to an idol. Well, you could do a couple of things. You could choose not to go to the restaurant at all and as a result miss out on opportunities to have a lunch with your coworker or have lunch with your family member. Say, listen, I, I can't go somewhere where their food is going to be offered to idols. Or the other option is you could actually go. You could go to the restaurant realizing that those idols don't really exist that they are nothing, and so waving some meat before non-existent idol doesn't really change anything, right? And this is similar to what's happening in Corinth in the first century. We have these new converts who were saved out of a life of idolatry, and, and they can't come to grips with the idea of eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. And so you have differing views on this. Some Christians are fine with it, saying there's no problem, this is not a sin for me to eat meat sacrificed to an idol. And the others, these new converts, are saying, well, actually, yes, it is. It's a huge problem because I I was saved out of that and I associate idol worship with eating that food because that's what we did. And so the question is, how does a person begin to deal with this issue when you have Christians on opposite sides of a debatable issue? Some think that eating meat doesn't change anything. Idols are nothing. Others think that, that this is sin. So how do we deal with that? Okay, we, we don't have that specific issue going on. But what about some other debatable issue in our day? How do we deal with it when we have Christians on either side of, of, the, um, of the debate? Well, let me ask you a question. If you had to sum up the Christian life in one word, what would it be? Love. What was it? Christ. Is that what you said? Grace. Sorry. Grace. Okay. Lots of answers here that would work. Um, but what Paul's going to say is, well, let's, let's, let's take a step back now, okay? Because I think what Paul's going to be driving at is love. But, but let's take a step back into the Old Testament. Take all 613 commands... How would we sum them up? How do we sum up the Old Testament laws? Well, there's two ways you can do it. What is it? Love the Lord with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the whole purpose of the law. That's the whole summary of the law. 
The purpose is to show us our sins, show us that we can't meet, meet up to it. But, but that was the whole purpose of it. And this is what the gospel does to a person. Okay, even though we're not under the law, it still it teaches us how to love God and to love others. It transforms a sinner into a person who still sins, but he loves God and he loves others. Because loving God and loving others doesn't come naturally. By nature, we are selfish and self-consumed. So, when we have to deal with issues where we are intersecting our lives with a non-Christian culture, then how do we handle this situation? How do we handle, I'm going to argue, non-moral issues? How do we handle a non-moral issue when I'm alone? Can I participate in a, in a non-moral, debatable issue when I'm alone? How about when I'm in the presence of another brother in Christ? This is what chapters 8 through 10 are all about. Paul begins a new chapter here regarding a question that the Corinthians have about eating meat sacrificed to idols. And he says the first place that we need to start before we get into the topic and what you ought to do with regard to the meat, the first thing that you need to know is you have a responsibility to love one another. Let's see if we can see this in the text. Would you follow along as I read? Chapter 8. This is the Word of God. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we, all, that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom, all are, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we exist through Him. However, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food, will not condemn us to, uh, but food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, nor the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge... He who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. So, Paul began answering the questions of the Corinthians in chapter 7 by talking about sexual intimacy and marriage. Now he responds to a question about whether Christians should eat meat. And he's going to respond to the, this question over the next three chapters. And here's a summary of what his answer is. Very short, very short answer. It depends. So can we eat meat, sacrifice to idols? And the answer is it depends. The long answer is that 
Christians should not do anything that would harm the spiritual progress of their fellow Christians. That means we have to be willing to give up personal freedoms in order to prevent our brother from stumbling. That's chapter 8. In chapter 9, he's going to give an example of how he personally gave up something. He gave up his personal right to receive money for preaching. And he's basically saying, I'm doing this for the edification of my brothers. And I can do that. I can give up my personal freedom because I'm concerned about them, their, their spiritual well-being. Then in chapter 10, he's going to make a prohibition against eating in the temple and remind them of what he said in chapter 8. So, chapter 8 is about the fact that Christians ought to love one another by doing nothing that would harm another's spiritual progress. Christians love one another by doing nothing that would harm another's spiritual progress. See, we, we as Christians have freedom in Christ. In fact, you think about it as a Jew... He, he was under the Old Testament law, under all these food laws. Um, he had to observe all these festivals and days. But then when Jesus came, He released him from all that tyranny, we could say, the tyranny of the law. And so a Jew was free from all those things. But the problem for us is that we can misuse our freedom. And if we, use our, our, if we misuse our freedom and cause destruction on our brother, then we have failed. We have not sought to love our brother. See, as a Christian, we are free to engage in our liberties, we could say, our freedoms, our non-prohibited activities, but only if it's not a stumbling block to a weaker brother. All right? So that's where we're going. Let's see if we can show you in the text how... Let me see if I can show you in the text how I get there. All right, first... Knowledge without love produces arrogance in verses 1 through 3. Knowledge without love produces arrogance. Spiritual knowledge is good and necessary, but academic spiritual knowledge that does not lead you to love other people is of no use at all, right? Picture the man who's... Picture a monk. Okay, we're going to pick on monks tonight. Picture a monk who's sitting up on the top of a 25-foot pole studying the Scriptures. And he's building up all this academic knowledge. But he never uses it because he's got no one there to use it on. Right? He, does, he, he can't show love to anyone because he's self-consumed, really. Even in his, his personal study of the Bible, he can be self-consumed. So if, if that's all our knowledge is about, academic, spiritual knowledge, just for the sake of having knowledge, not anything that translates into love, then it's of no use at all. Paul is on the same page as the Corinthians. He's going to say, listen, you Corinthians who think that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, I'm going to agree with you in verses 4 through 6. And, but if we just have knowledge about what, it, what we can do, what's allowed and what's not, we take that knowledge and use it like a club to beat somebody on the head or use our knowledge as a tripwire to make them stumble, you know, we don't really care then we are proud fools. This is the point of verse 1. Academic spiritual knowledge makes arrogant if it's not combined with love. Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, 
but love edifies. So we could take out that little phrase, that little clause, knowledge makes arrogant. And we could build a whole theology just on that. But Paul is not calling for anti-knowledge, right? He's not calling for anti-intellectualism where we just don't think about what we believe. We just don't study the text very deeply. We just take a surface view of everything. We condemn anyone who, who gets a college or a seminary degree and, and we never work towards knowing any more than we know right now. Because you know what? Knowledge makes arrogant. That's not what Paul's saying. And I know he's not saying that because of Colossians 1.9 where he prays the highest thing that he can pray for the believers is they would grow in the knowledge of all, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That you will grow to know God. There's nothing greater than to know God. And real knowledge of God translates into love. Those who truly know God will build others up with love. They will use their knowledge for eternal benefit in the lives of others. You see, uh, you see that in the end of verse 1? But love edifies. So academic spiritual knowledge makes arrogant if it's not combined with love because love edifies. Love grows out of a proper knowledge of God. Verse 2, it's foolish to be arrogant about something that's partial and incomplete. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he has not yet known as he ought to know. Right? If you think you have arrived, then you don't yet know what you ought to know. We don't have infinite wisdom. We are finite and sinful. We fall short of perfect knowledge. And so why would we be so arrogant as if we have arrived? Right? It's foolish to be arrogant about something that's partial and incomplete. In verse 3, he says that real knowledge leads to fellowship with, with God. But if anyone loves God, he is known by Him. Those who have genuine knowledge use it to express their love for God and in turn are loved by God. That they have mutual fellowship with God. Knowledge without love produces arrogance. So, so far, Paul hasn't answered their question. Their question is, what do we do about meat sacrificed to idols? Paul's answer so far is, start with this foundation. Love for your brother. That's where it starts. Make that your driving uh, thought. Your driving motivation as you go to do something. How does this affect my relationship with my brother in Christ? Now, in verses... 4 through 6, he's going to give an example of knowledge. He's going to say, here's where we can have knowledge about food sacrificed to idols. I'm going to show you that I agree with you in that it's okay to eat it. But in verses 7 through 13, he's going to say, but if we take what we know is true, it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, and we do it without concern for our brother, then we have no love. We've actually caused damage. We've actually scandalized the gospel. So in verses 4 through 6, we have an example of knowledge. And what he's, what he's saying here is that nothing, there's nothing inherently sinful about eating meat. There's nothing inherently sinful about eating meat. Any amens for that one? Okay. Amen. Nothing inherently sinful about eating meat, even if it's sacrificed to an idol. He's going to, to show how knowledge and love are connected to their question. See, Paul, Paul agrees with the Corinthians who think that it's okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. Look at verse 4. 
Therefore, concerning the eat of things concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol. So here's his argument all in verse 4. He just summarizes it and then he expands upon it in verses 5 and 6. First says, we know that there's not an idol. And the second point is, there's only one God. So we who are, he's going to categorize the two kinds of people. Those who, are, who have strong conscience, a strong conscience, and those who have a weak conscience. Those who have a strong conscience know that there's no such thing as an idol. And it's as if, you know, uh, um, someone's just waving a wand over the food. It doesn't do anything. It doesn't change anything. The Corinthian Gentiles believed that, that this was a dom- demonic activity. That, that in order to... Re- you almost had to exercise the meat. That is, that, that this meat had demons attached to it and the only way that these demons could be removed before you ate them was to sacrifice them in the pagan temple. So you, you sacrifice the meat to the pagan gods. Some of that meat, meat is eaten right there. The rest of it's sold in the marketplace. And so, you know, the danger in not sacrificing it, in their view, was you eat the meat that's connected to a demon and now you have a demon. And this created a dilemma for a Gentile convert who had grown up in those kinds of, of pagan practices and now was forced to make a choice. Can I go back and eat that which was connected to some kind of idol worship? And Paul's saying, listen, I know and you know, some of you Christian Corinthian believers know that it's okay to eat meat. Why? First, those idols don't mean anything. Those idols don't mean anything. Look at the middle of verse 4. There's no such thing as an idol. Verse 5. For even if there are so-called gods or idols, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet there, there is but one God. Now this is a little bit tricky because we know of other places where Paul does believe in idols. Right? Acts 17. When he's standing on Mars Hill, what does he say? I have come into your city and I have seen that it's wholly given to idols. So it's not that he, he's like, well, no one really makes them. We'll just kind of duck our heads in the sand and pretend that idols don't exist. That's not what he's saying. He's saying they're, they're effectively non-existent. They're man-made items. They're made by men and cared for by men. I, Paul and I had the opportunity to, not the apostle, uh, in Brazil to, to see idols in their infant stage that they were some of the idols were being brought in we we went to a buddhist temple to see uh what it was like and um some of these idols were being brought in and some were covered in order to protect them from the elements others were in pieces you know and it reminds me of isaiah 40 your two two favorite stories in the bible that show the silliness or the folly of idols. One is the story of Dagon and the other is Isaiah 40 where you have the man who grabs a log and he chops it up into pieces. One of the pieces he uses to make an idol and the other pieces he uses for what? For firewood. He needs to warm up his dinner. And it shows the silliness of, of the same piece of wood is used both to help the man and to, to make this idol. It's, it's nothing. Here's what Isaiah 41:29 says, 
All of them are false. Their works are worthless. Their molten images are wind and emptiness. That's what Paul means. He's not saying that they, they, there's, you know, when I look at them or I put my hand through them, there's nothing there. He's not saying that. No, they, they do exist, but in, in the big scheme of things, they're nothing. They're nothings. There's nothing behind them. They're made by men. They're cared for by men. They fall over and have to be picked back up. They have, they have their feet broken off and so on. And they have to be fixed. These idols don't mean anything. Second reason um, that it's okay to eat meat, sacrifice to idols, is that there's only one God. It really goes with the first reason. There's only one God. You see this at the end of verse 4. There is no God but one. And then verse 6. Yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for Him. This is um, probably brings the readers to mind the, the Shema, the very first thing that a Jewish boy would learn, Jewish girl would learn. Deuteronomy 6, chapter, chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? And, and so he says, there is no God, verse 4, there is no God but one. Verse 6, there is but one God, and He is the Father. Notice that He's the source of all things in verse 6. From whom are all things. But He's also the goal of all things. We exist for Him. So everything comes from Him, and everything is ultimately going to be consummated in Him. And this one God, in the next line of verse 6, has revealed Himself in the person of Christ. One Lord, Jesus Christ. And notice how He is described. He is also described as one by whom are all things. Does that sound familiar? That's how we described the Father earlier in the verse. So Jesus is God. He is the Creator. By Christ, by the Father, are all things. And then notice how it changes the preposition there at the end of verse 5. Instead of we exist for Him, notice we exist through Him. So Jesus is the agent of our existence. So in short, the Corinthians who thought it was okay to eat meat, they were right. And Paul's saying, you have knowledge and there's nothing inherently sinful about eating meat, even if it's offered to an idol, because idols are nothing and there's only one God. But, what happens when a person takes his knowledge and I would suggest even a correct knowledge, a correct understanding, and uses it carelessly or without compassion what happens? And so that's why he, he responds here in verses 7 through 13. Here's an example of knowledge without love. And, and his point is, is that eating meat with no regard for my brother is scandalous. Eating meat with no regard for my brother is scandalous. Because here's the reality. The reality is that not everyone has the same liberty that you have. Now, they may have it, they just don't know they have it. Notice the first word in verse 7. However, Paul has been pointing out that many Christians rightly see that idols are nothing, and that's true, and that there is only one God, but not all Christians have that knowledge, or at least they're not able to apply it to their situation. Right? If you, if you quizzed them and said, how many gods are there? He said, well, there are only one God. He would get that right. Do idols really exist? You might not get that one right. I'm not sure. But the point is, is, he doesn't know how to apply it to his 
eating because he's been doing it his whole life connected to idol worship and thinking, how can this be any different when I'm a Christian? Should I not give this up? Paul says, however. See, some people don't see it the same way as you. Some Christians see the act of eating meat as sin. Notice the next part of verse 7. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, right? they've, they've had a, a history with this idol. They eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. In other words, as if the, the idol actually existed and it did something to the food. And their conscience being weak is defiled. So talking about, he comes to Christ, he associates eating meat with idol worship, and if he eats that same meat after coming to Christ, then because his conscience is weak, it's been trained to think wrongly that it's, it's sin. And so if he does, if he defies his conscience, even if his conscience is mis- misinformed about a debatable issue. Okay, he has freedom in this area. He, he should see this, but he doesn't. So his conscience is telling him, no, don't eat it. And he does it anyway. What, what is that for him? To him, uh, I was going to quote Romans 16 here, but... I'm not sure if that applies, so I don't want to misapply that one. Um, So let me just continue then. So for him, it's sin to to defy his conscience. Now, Paul in verse 8 reinforces the idea that it's not sinful. Again, notice verse 8, just in case we're kind of wondering, how could this not be sinful? Look at verse 8. What what he doesn't know, the the man with the weak conscience, is that, verse 8, food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat nor the better if we do eat. Isn't that what Jesus said? It's not what goes into your body that corrupts you. There's no corrupting uh, activity that's going on when you put a certain piece of food inside of your body. You know, some unclean piece of food doesn't corrupt you. It's what comes out of your heart. So the reality of liberty is that not everyone has, or at least not everyone knows they have it. And here's the real scandal. The scandal of misused liberty. Verses 9 and 10. When you eat meat without regard for your brother, you actually encourage your brother to sin. Paul's saying, you strong Christians, you have your liberty to eat meat. You have your knowledge about what is okay. But you had better take care of that liberty. You better, you better not be careless with it. Otherwise, you may create a pitfall for your brother. Look at verse 9. But take care that this liberty of yours, this liberty that it's okay to eat meat, this knowledge that it's okay to eat meat, does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Again, this goes back to his first point in verses 1 through 3. We can't have knowledge without love, or else we become arrogant. And as a result, we have actually endangered our brother. You know, we have this conviction about what is okay for us. And we say, this is my conviction. I'm convinced of it from the Scripture that this is okay. And so I'm going to do it. I don't care what happens. 
And actually in doing so, we actually create a stumbling block for our brother with a different conviction. In verse 10, he gives an example of a Christian wielding his liberty like a sword. He says, "For if someone sees you, specifically someone who has a weak conscience, a Christian, someone sees you who have knowledge, and like, wait, he knows, he's been around, he knows what's okay with God, and he sees you dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? So you go to a pagan temple restaurant, and your brother, your Christian brother with a weak conscience, sees you. You know what's going to happen? He's going to be encouraged to stumble. He's going to be encouraged to eat that meat even though his conscience doesn't allow him to. He is actually emboldened to sin against his conscience. And why? Look at verse 10. Because he saw you. If someone sees you who have knowledge, he saw you who had, <coughs> excuse me, who had this great knowledge. And notice what it did to him. It strengthened him See that at the end of verse 10? It strengthened him to eat things sacrificed to idols. In other words, your carelessness strengthened a Christian to sin. Now that word strengthened, or the verbal phrase there, be strengthened, comes from the same Greek word that's translated as edifies in verse 1. Look up there again. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love strengthens. Love edifies. Do you see the contrast? Our responsibility, the foundation from which we ought to be thinking about debatable issues is, I want to edify my brother, so I'm going to love him. I'm going to do something that's actually going to be inconvenient for me so that I can strengthen him, edify him. But instead... When I am careless about my convictions, I actually strengthen him. I edify him towards sin, which is kind of an oxymoron, right? I edify a weak conscience Christian to sin. That's what happens when I take my liberty and say, I can do what I want. I am in Christ. I actually can create, create a stumbling block. I can cause my brother to sin. See, the strong think that they're actually building up the weak by saying, you know, maybe they just need to watch my example. Right? If they see that I use my freedom well, then they can use their freedom better. But in actuality, what they're doing is they're actually building them up to sin against their conscience and to bring spiritual ruin. So the scandal of misused liberty is that you encourage your brother to sin. Secondly, you lead your brother to destruction or to use the word of verse 11, to ruin. Verse 11 reads, for through, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, destroyed. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Now, in case you think we're talking about just a professing believer, you know, this guy he just doesn't get it. He's not a true believer. He just made a profession of faith. He's not a genuine believer. Then, then notice what the text says. Again, notice the end of verse 11. The brother for whose sake Christ died. Any chance that's a, an unbeliever who just made a profession of faith? No, that's, that's a Christian. Verse 12 says, against the brethren. 
right? By sinning against the brethren. Verse 13 says, I will not do anything that causes my brother to stumble. So here we're talking about another Christian who has a weak conscience. And if we just carelessly use our freedom, our liberty, our convictions, without concern for our brother, then we lead him down a path towards ruin. What is this ruin then? Well, it can't be spiritual condemnation in hell forever, right? We just saw that it's talking about a Christian. So we know that a Christian can't lose his salvation. And we also know that it's not talking about spiritual condemnation in hell. That's not what it's talking about in this text. Destruction does mean that in other contexts, but here it doesn't. Verse 11, notice the, the, uh, the tense of the verb, the, the middle of the verse. It says, he who is weak is ruined, not will be ruined. See, if it were future destruction, talking about hell forever, you would expect a, a future tense verb. We will be ruined, but instead it's is ruined. So he is currently ruined. So in what way is he ruined? It seems to me that since he is a Christian, this ruin has something to do with stunting his spiritual growth. Have you ever had a spiritual setback from which it was hard to recover? Have you ever fallen into the trap of sin and it took months or years to get out? Would you wish that in anyone? See, to use our liberty carelessly is to set our a trap out for our unsuspecting brother who's just kind of walking along through life going, doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, Right? My wiser, stronger-conscienced brother thinks it's okay, so I do too. And guess where he's going to step? Into ruin. He's going to stunt his spiritual growth, cause damage to himself spiritually, and be set back. To encourage your brother to sin when you scandalize your personal liberty, you lead your brother to spiritual destruction. And the third reason that it's a scandal to misuse your liberty is because you sin against Christ. Don't think that, you know, well, yeah, I I missed out on the love part and I kind of didn't help them very much, but at least I'm okay with God myself. No, you're not. Look at verse 12. And so, by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, You sin against Christ. So, again, notice the command in verse 9. Take care that this liberty of yours does not become a stumbling block to the weak. There's the command. Don't do that. Why? You're You're going to encourage your brother to sin. You're going to lead him to spiritual ruin. And you sin against Christ. Do not take your liberty lightly. Because to sin against your brother is to sin against Christ. Paul concludes with a principle to live by in verse 13. He says, Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will not eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. This principle is one 
that I think Paul believed and used in every area of his life, not just eating. That is that, that I will give up, Paul is saying, I will give up any and all of my personal freedoms if they are the catalyst for my brother's sin, my brother's stumbling. We who are strong must act in consideration of the weak. Recognize that there are not there are people who don't quite see things the, the way that the scriptures have explained them. They they don't quite see all the freedoms that they do have in Christ. So we need to live in consideration of our brothers. We need to show love. A couple principles here. Number one. My personal convictions are less important than my brother's spiritual well-being. My personal convictions, and I would say about debatable issues, even if they're right, even if my convictions are right, are less important than my brother's spiritual well-being. Okay, so, so what I'm not talking about here is my conviction that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Okay, I'm not saying we can get rid of all of the, let's just take the core of Christianity, the things we cannot deny in order to be a Christian. Right? We can just get rid of all those convictions because it's more important to love, and I'm just going to love my brother. That's not what he's saying. Okay, he's talking about debatable issues, things about which the Scriptures don't clearly speak, or about which they do, but it, it's not clear to a, a, a new convert. My personal convictions about debatable matters, even if they're right, are less important than my brother's spiritual well-being. One of the early church fathers, Chrysostom, said, if I go through life thinking, what do I care if someone else stumbles? Then I am inhumane and cruel. You see, the loving act of a knowledgeable believer is to use his liberty with care for the sake of his brother. I mean, my Christian freedoms are wonderful, and I love them, but, but I cannot go around wielding the, my liberty like a sword or taking my convictions about these debatable issues and beating other people over the head like a club. If you have knowledge of what God allows, you must live in consideration of those who don't have knowledge about that specific issue. The point that Paul's making here that, that we need to be we need to have knowledge, but we um, but there but it's not as important as love. He's he's not he's not teaching us to be like Tim Taylor from the old T V sitcom, what was it, Home Improvement? When his wife would ask him about something. I have no what? I have no opinion. Okay, Paul's not teaching us to be like an inner tube on a lazy river that just goes wherever the river flows. I guess we can just be a convictionless blob. Just float on through life. It doesn't matter what we think about debatable issues. We won't even study them. No. Ephesians 5.10 says to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. It's something that we ought to be searching in the Scriptures. But just because we have a freedom, but just because we can do something doesn't mean we should. You might look at this and think, well, what kind of freedom is that? 
That doesn't sound like freedom at all. I have a freedom that I can't even use. It sounds like a shackle to me. Right? Because now I have to be concerned about my weak-conscienced brother. So I can't even use the freedom that I have. My answer to you would be yes. But isn't that what love is? Where we give up our personal rights in order to please another person, in order for the well-being, the benefit of another person. We seek their interests over ourselves. And, And if we seek their interests over ourselves, it assumes that we have to give something up that we otherwise could have had, right? That's love. My personal convictions are less important than my brother's spiritual well-being. And secondly, my love for my brother compels me to live by the following resolutions. Number one, I resolve to do nothing that would cause my brother to sin. Is that consistent with what Paul said here today? I will do nothing that will cause my brother to sin. Seems like that's what he's saying here. In verse 13. So here's here's a commitment that we ought to have ourselves, a resolution. It's like whenever whatever I do in life, I'm going to keep. I'm not going to do anything that's going to cause my brother to sin. I'm not going to set a pitfall for them that, that they would just kind of stumble into. Secondly, I resolve to do nothing that would hinder my brother's spiritual growth. I get that from verse 10. Right? That, that if I go and do something that I know I can do, and my brother sees me, and he says, wait a second, he has knowledge. And now he's strengthened. He's edified to eat things sacrificed to idol, which for him is spiritual ruin for him is to defile his conscience. As verse 12 calls it, it wounds his conscience. So here's a couple commitments that we ought to have. I resolve to do nothing that would cause my brother to sin. I will do nothing that will harm or hinder my brother's spiritual growth. And here's the hard one. Verse verse 3. It's not Bible. Okay, this is personal resolution. I resolve to give up my personal freedoms in order to fulfill resolutions one and two. So if one and two are important, if my love for my brother is expressed in keeping him from sin based on the activities that I engage in and keeping him from being hindered in his spiritual growth, then I am willing to give up, number three, my personal freedoms so that both of those things don't happen to him. Sounds like a high calling, doesn't it? And why would anyone ever do this? Why would any Christian ever give up their personal freedoms for the good of others? And the answer is that Paul did. That's what chapter 9 is about. Saying, you know, I had the right to take money from you because 
those who preach the gospel ought to get their living from the gospel. And, and so I had the right to do it, but I gave up that right. Do you know why? Because I didn't want you to think that I was peddling the gospel for money. I wanted you to be clear about what I was coming to do. See what Paul's doing? He's, he's making it harder on himself to go through life. He has to take another job so that he can offer to, to the believers there something they otherwise wouldn't have had. He can say, well, wait a second, it's my freedom. I can have it. And yet he recognized that in his case, being a pioneer missionary, they might look at it like we look at prosperity preachers. It's all about the, it's all about the Benjamins, right? So, why would any Christian ever give up their personal freedoms for the good of others? Well, Paul did. But the greater motivation and example is who? Jesus. Did he not give up his personal rights for our spiritual and eternal well-being? Philippians 2, 7 and 8, he emptied himself, taking on the form of a bondservant. He humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So we can we can do these we can resolve to do these things and we can do them because we have the example of both Christ and Paul and we have been gifted with the Holy Spirit who helps us to see that this is important to love my brother and to keep him from sinning that I'm you know what I could get to heaven a lot faster if I didn't have all these people slowing me down but but did you ever consider that maybe even in you being slowed down by them, you're actually helping to speed them up. Yes, it's an inconvenience for you. Yes, it takes more time out of your schedule, maybe more money like it does for Paul. That's okay. Because I want to I see them make it to the finish line. I want to see them receive the crown of life which the Lord promises to those who love Him. That means a couple minor sacrifices in terms of the big scheme of things, in terms of eternity. I'm happy to do it for the sake of my brother, for the sake of his spiritual well-being. That's what love looks like. When it comes to a, a Christian interacting or intersecting with a non-Christian culture. Any questions, comments? And I don't have a list for you right now. Um, I've been trying to... I've been, I've been thinking through it myself, too, but um, my pastor, um, about five or ten years... Well, more than five years ago I've been here, but ten or fifteen years ago, probably, um, was preaching through these kinds of... It's Romans 14 and 15. And, and uh, 
we were just dying for him to give us an example. Please give us something. You know, what is this? And he never did. And um, not that he hadn't thought of any his, himself, but I'd, um, I i don't know the reason why. Maybe I need to talk to him. But um, that's, that's a difficult one because um, even, you know, the way that I introduced this material it sounded like what we're doing is wrong here. Eating meat, sacrificed to idols. We would never go to a restaurant like that. All things. No, it's actually okay. Because those are nothing. But it could be wrong for someone else. So you can't. You know, it, seem, it doesn't seem to make sense. You know, something's either. We like the black and white. It's either right or wrong. And you're saying that something's right for one person or wrong for another person? Yeah. We all have different consciences. We all have, come from different backgrounds. You know, someone who. Uh, I don't want to use that example. Maybe if I think about it, get back to it in chapter 10. Jared. Yeah, that's probably a good example. Um, Brian Trainer was here at our church several months ago, and he's uh, working through um, this passage in my brother's Sunday school class, and he was telling me about some of the things he was saying. He actually said that, that something like that happened when he was a dean at Maranatha Baptist Bible College and um, started going to a church there in the area, and one of the first questions they asked is, does your wife wear pants? And he's like, well, it depends. <laughs> you know, if, if it's a problem, then no, she doesn't. You know, she, she'll, she, she's going to do it at our, ho- at our house, and, you know, we get together with our family and stuff like that, but if it causes someone else to stumble, then that's probably a good example. That's one I was thinking of as well. And, um, because there are, there are some, you know, associations that people have had with, with wearing pants, and, I mean, it was only 45 years ago that it was very much frowned upon for a woman to wear pants, a Christian woman to wear pants in church, at least the kind of churches that I've been at. You know, So um, if it causes that person to sin, they've come out, they, they've had this mindset growing up that that, that is sin, then... Okay, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna inconvenience myself, you know, speaking as if I were a woman, and and wear a skirt. Um, Paul. Yeah.
Yeah, or walking into another culture, you know, Ivory Coast or whatever, and just kind of living however we live in America, or like we learned in, you know, um, in Brazil, this this symbol is not a good one in Brazil. Um, for us, it just means okay, but for them, it's it's uh, vulgar, you know. So, um, how do you know that? I have the freedom to to hold my fingers however I want, you know. But but uh, but for the sake of people who see that as their you know, part of their culture is something that is sinful and godless, then I'm going to refrain from doing this in Brazil. Even though the Buddhist, <laughs> the Buddhist uh, god, or you call them idols, they're all standing like this in Brazil. That, that was something we got. We thought was pretty comical. They, you know, some things just don't transcend culture, and that doesn't in Brazil. But for some reason, there are Brazilian Buddhists. All right, we'll think about this this week, and um, we'll use the example. Kind of, kind of feels like we're getting off topic next time with chapter nine, because Paul says, you know, I have the freedom to let me show you how this works in my life and with something I gave up. But then he's going to get back to the eating meat, sacrifice to idols, Sandra. Yeah.